Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville. Local Pride, Global Technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com. 332-4495 for delivery. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael, and our topic today is Woodstock. Uh, We have three guests in the studio with us today. Glenn Gass is here. He's a professor of music at the IU Jacobs School. Michael McGurr, the Paul V. McNutt Professor of History at IU. And John McDowell, who's folklore professor and director of the Individualized Major Program at Indiana University. You can join us on the program by calling 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can join the discussion at our website, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, Bob and I have decided to do something for the first time today. We're going to dedicate today's show to Alice Hershey. Um, Alice is the daughter of Gordon and Joan Hershey here in Bloomington. Um, she's a, a student at Swarthmore, and um, she's been in a serious accident. And so we wanted to send um, our love and best wishes to the Hershey family and dedicate today's show to Alice and um, let all of them know that we're thinking about them. Um, Gordon's name might be familiar to many of you. He's a very frequent contributor to Noon Edition, so it seemed appropriate that we uh, send our love to them today. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Mary Catherine, and uh, welcome back to you. Thank you. All right. Was I gone? (laughs) A week or two. Oh, okay. Or maybe I was. (laughs) Let's talk about about the the topic of the day, Woodstock. It's 40 years ago, and actually it was was last week, right? So we're Mm -hmm. we're a little bit late on the program. So uh, were any of you there? I've got to ask that. No. no. Okay. In, in spirit. In spirit. Yeah. All right. Well, I want, I want to, to, to talk uh, – I guess I'll, I'll go with Glenn first. Um, you know, the big question I guess I want to start the program with, and then we can break it down to all sorts of things. But, you know, how would you describe the significance of that event? Oh, boy. <clears throat> well, that's a big I, one. I, it was a big one. And I was there. We were all there in spirit. And I think that's, you know, some concerts you just miss. But Woodstock, you could feel sort of allied to just by – well, the, the movie, the album, but also just by seeing photos and seeing that many people that sort of look like you, that might think like you, that that feel the way you do, and just the sheer numbers were like were thrilling. Like, wow, there are that many of us in the counterculture. So I, I think that it sort of became more than a concert immediately. It became a myth and a, and a happy one. Mm-hmm. Michael. Well, Bob, I think the 60s are defined by a series of big crowd scenes. You think of the the multitude at the uh, Lincoln Memorial for Martin mm-hmm. Luther King Jr. in 1963. And Woodstock is that massive, the biggest crowd scene of them all. And it's the countercultural one, the one that really visibly constitutes what the counterculture would be, built around a set of alternative values, anti-capitalist, free expression, uh, articulating a different sense of what pleasure and joy and love are supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. John? Yeah, I think that in addition to those points, uh, there was the uh, articulation of a very different vision of uh, the country and uh, Woodstock was really a point of no return in some ways, uh, a point when uh, a generation struck out in a different direction, uh, you know, very determined to uh, to look for an alternative opportunity. Mm-hmm. Now, now, John, as I understand it, you're one of your specialties is protest songs yes. in, in folklore, and so the uh, you know the 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 event Woodstock, and there were several protest songs that we could probably recall. But do you see that? I mean, is this something that you teach in your classes? Is this an, an area? Um, do you see this as a protest event? Well, I think that uh, you know that's an interesting question. Um, 
Certainly, uh, you know, you had people like Joan Baez was there and Arlo Guthrie was there. Uh, Richie Havens did the famous uh, freedom uh, improvisation that brought the storm. And, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, so uh, uh, those people are pretty iconic in terms of uh, American protest song. Uh, All of them, in some sense, being uh, children of uh, Woody Guthrie and um, you can certainly see a lot of continuities um, with uh, protest song in this country and Woodstock as a as a culmination. At the same time, though, um, really the overt statement of political protest wasn't quite the message of, of the day. Uh, it was about peace and love, which I think was seen as a political statement. Um, but certainly it was far from, let's say, partisan politics, the kind of wrangling that we – uh, are very accustomed to uh, in our own time right now. Mm-hmm. You think both parties were represented there? I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably in the half a million people. I, most, uh, most likely. But, but there is the famous story of Abby Hoffman getting up during the Who set and trying to make an explicit political statement and Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey basically literally throwing him off the stage. And it just didn't feel in the spirit if it had, if it had been a sort of a protest the war rally concert, I think it would have been it would, it would have had less impact. I think it became an event bigger than itself because it wasn't tied to a cause or a specific issue. Right. It was a lifestyle. Michael? Well, I, I would say though that for me the most stunning of Wood, moment of Woodstock is a political moment and it's the performance of uh, country Joe McDonald mm-hmm. uh, that, that does three things. First, uh, it's this incredible moment that establishes that there's a new kind of free expression in America when they do the fish cheer, Mm -hmm. which begins, give me an F, give me a U. Mm -hmm. And he's building this crowd and then he sings the I feel like I'm fixing to die rag, which is this stunning song about Vietnam. Um, Come on, mothers and fathers throughout the land, be the first on your block to have your boy come home in a box. Mm -hmm. And he gets – so it is an overtly anti-war moment and he gets this whole crowd fired up. Um, standing and singing in, in, in the film of Woodstock, you get that enormous panned shot of the whole crowd. Uh, gal- in, in that moment, the community of Woodstock, the countercultural community, is anti-war. Mm-hmm. So it is yeah. political among many other things. And that's one of the uh, – certainly one of the, the scenes of the movie that I remember the best. And Mary Catherine kind of startled me when she said we were doing something different. She, I, she had at one point said she was going to start with that chant. <laughs> <laughs> so I wondered where she was going with that. I but, thought I might but, like to come back next week. I, so I, 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 I decided not to. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there was something liberating about imagining – Saying that word out loud, <laughs> 400,000 strong. Wouldn't be the first time. Your I mother and father would not approve. And so, that was a lot of the yeah. subtext of Woodstock was your parents would be appalled and we're going to show them we can do this. But I, what I love about uh, what Michael was saying too is that that song is a lampoon. It's fun and funny. It's a fun send-up mm-hmm. of the war. And and they had – remember they had in the movie the little sing-along with Mitch, the bouncing ball yeah. over the words. Uh-huh. And they, they, I mean the one really explicit political moment is, is fun, which is totally in the spirit of Woodstock. It's, mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated on kind of a practical – and I assume this has probably been covered in, in other venues, but I'd like to talk about it just a little bit. This is pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook, pre-Internet, and yet – that many people knew to go to that spot, which is, I think, fair to say, off the beaten path. Um, how did that happen? <laughs> well, anybody know? well, it happened because it, it, it was well hyped, especially oh. in the in the New York area. Um, lots of kids had heard about it, and, and of course, before Twitter, you actually did have to communicate, so <laughs> of people did. Um, but it was. It, you know, Woodstock is the climax of a series of, of huge uh, music events that start out in Monterey in 1967. And so young people were attuned to the idea of this is an exciting and different thing. Mm-hmm. And in this case, what would be the ultimate large-scale music event? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the fact that it was in the New York area made so much difference too, in the media coverage as well. But you just had this sort of <laughs> saturation of young college-age students that were, could go a few hours and be there mm-hmm. while all the people of the town of Woodstock are holding signs saying, no, it's not here. You've got to go 30 miles that way. But somehow everybody found what – yes, I've been there. It's a, not, not an easy place to find now with, with Google Maps. So mm-hmm. it's sort mm-hmm. of amazing. But you just follow the trail of stalled cars, I guess. <laughs> we're, we're talking about Woodstock today with uh, – 
three professors from Indiana University representing sort of different disciplines. Glenn Gass is here from the IU Jacobs School of Music, Michael McGurr, the Paul V. McNutt Professor of History, and John McDowell, Folklore Professor and Director of the Individualized Major Program at IU. If you want to join us, uh, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is our website and we're also on Twitter at Noon Edition. It would be great to hear from someone who was in attendance at the event. It would. Really neat. Love to hear your memories. Who was really there. Yeah. Who really don't, remembers. Don't call and make stuff up. Now. Yeah, right. Glenn, I want to ask you, uh, you know, you're, you're sort of well-known for uh, being the, the rock and roll professor at, at IU and the, all the Beatles stuff that you've done over the years. Where does, uh, where does Woodstock for you fit into the whole history of, of music and, and pop music in, in the United States? Well, and interestingly, the Beatles were within days of finishing Abbey Road, their last album, when Woodstock was happening. So it really is sort of like this high watermark of the 60s before mm-hmm. it all just implodes with Aldemont and Janice and Jimmy. And I think like Michael was saying, too, there's an arc, a narrative to the 60s, and it makes a really neat uh, beginning with John Kennedy, John Glenn, and the Beatles and Ed Sullivan, and all those kids watching Ed Sullivan grow into the Woodstock nation and changing the world by the sheer force of their numbers. And it, it makes a really good storyline. And I, mm-hmm. I look at it as sort of the high watermark of the hippie ideal and uh, before it imploded on itself. And mm-hmm. I think it works pretty well that way. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's the way Neil Young talks about it and Joni Mitchell and people that were really t- tied to that. They, they looked at it. I mean, Joni Mitchell wrote the song, Woodstock, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young made it a hit. And, you know, right away it was – that wasn't cynical at all. They really believed something special happened here. This proves what we've been saying and proves we can do it. Mm-hmm. All right. We have some phone calls. Uh, let's go to Valerie first. Valerie? Um, yeah. Hi. I just wanted to make a quick call. I was in person at Woodstock, mm-hmm. um, and I just want to make a few comments quickly about what you discussed so far. First of all, as far as how people found out about it, you know, I had no idea what I was getting in for. <laughs> I think they had sold, you know, like 20,000 tickets, you know, and half a million people showed up. So it wasn't just marketing. But um, I was living in Bloomington, and my sister was living in Cambridge, Mass. And, you know, I was going to go out and visit her, and I remember her calling me and saying, hey, there's going to be some rock concert in New York. Do you want to get tickets? We actually had tickets, which were, um, I believe, $6 a day for the three days. And uh, we hitchhiked early in the morning Friday from Cambridge with a sign and got picked up. And uh, already on the radio by mid-morning, you know, they were announcing, you know, this is a potential disaster scene. Don't anybody try to go there, which, of course, just made more and more kids want to go. (laughs) And uh, we, uh, our ride took us within five miles, and the New York Thruway was, in fact, closed. We walked the last five miles. It was just, you know, bumper-to-bumper stop traffic on the shoulders and you couldn't drive. We got out and walked and wore holes in our brand new hippie moccasins. <laughs> but as far as the political part, you know, I was just, you know, I was not really politically active at that time. And um, But I was discussing with a friend my age recently, you know, what was it about the 60s in our generation that, you know, people were much more expressive, it seems to me, about their feelings and discontent. And, and we put our finger on a couple of things, which people now who weren't living at that time, perhaps forget about, uh, not only was there an unpopular war, you know, there was a draft. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, 18-year-olds uh, could be drafted but, not, but couldn't vote. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these were some very, very important issues that I remember that, you know, this was somehow injustice to the supreme degree. And, um, but yeah, I'll just sum it up and say that uh, it wasn't just the music and it wasn't a political particular event. It was, it was the mass of people. Um, it, was, it was just really overwhelming to have that many people together. And all the people that lived along the five miles that we walked were bringing out their hoses so people could get water. You know, it was August. It was hot. Uh, and then the rain, you know, it just sort of reduced everything to a, a sort of uh, just almost primitive um, scene that, you know, what things are important. Well, food, water, shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, but it changed my life. I'm not sure exactly how it changed my life, but I know that it did. Yeah. How long did you stay? Well, we got there Friday, and, you know, it started raining Friday night. It rained all night, you know, one thorn- thunderstorm after another. And, you know, there was very no shelter. I mean, mm-hmm. we got acres and acres of wall-to-wall people like sardines lying out there in this 
drenching rain, and we had sleeping bags, and, you know, they got soaked. And No, but there wasn't, you know, you didn't know where you could get food. You didn't know where you could go to the bathroom, you know, where you get water. I mean, it was just a mass scene. It could have been a disaster scene. I mean, they were airlifting food and stuff in there. You know, it was... It was inaccessible, and it was just a huge mass of people, and more people coming all the time. And so we decided, since our sleeping bags were soaked and weighed about 50 pounds each, <laughs> I remember dragging them up the hill through the mud, and my sister and I just looked at each other, and we just dropped them. And my mother, rest her soul, who just died last year, you know, for 39 years, she wouldn't let us forget that, you girls, that's my sleeping bag at that <laughs> rock concert. <laughs> She didn't even call it Woodstock, you know. It was like, you just left them at that rock concert. But uh, she we be tried glad to that's get. That's the only thing you lost at Woodstock. Yeah, well, we tried to get out of there at that point because we kind of were getting sore throats. And getting out of there was no easy task. You know, you had to walk the same five miles that you, you know, which was maybe eight or ten miles by that point where you couldn't drive. And we were lucky. We got a ride on the back of some trailer with some motorcycles with no floor in it. We were just standing on this metal frame and some guy with a Volkswagen <laughs> that was zipping in and out of traffic. And, you know, we finally got back Boy. to Cambridge like Sunday morning um, early. Wow. Well, thanks for all the stories. But, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Sounds I, like could, fun. I could go on and on. It, it, yeah. it was just, it was pretty indescribable. I think the thing that, that overwhelmed us the most was just the numbers of people, you know, and it, and it was peaceful. I mean, it was, you know, everybody sharing and grooving on the music, and just it was a real sense of brotherhood. It was pretty indescribable. So right. I'll get off here. All right. Hey, thanks a lot for Thank the call. Thank you. All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and WFIU.org slash noon edition. We have another caller, but before I go to the other caller, any reaction to the things Valerie said? Does it sound like fun to you guys? Uh, yeah, it, you know, I, I I think that the comments were really well taken, um, all of them. But I think that um, the a word that I would toss in here would be this uh, sense of community, mm-hmm. you know. And and she she got at it in some of her comments. And and you know, there's nothing like a song, you know, words put to music, uh, the ideas, the emotional impact. Uh, to to create that sense of community and and that's something that comes through I think from a lot of the first person testimonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to build on that, I, I would say one of the things that drove the emergence of youth culture in the '60s was a sense that personal relationships weren't authentic anymore, mm-hmm. that they weren't real, and you see that expressed among student radicals all the time. And one of the reasons people were so interested in hippies and hippie culture was because they created new communities with seemingly more authentic relationships. What what music festivals like Woodstock did was offer a, te- a temporary kind of community built on new, on new personal relationships, real ones, and that's what people found so compelling about them beyond everything else. And it's interesting to hear that echoed mm-hmm. in the caller. Mm-hmm. I would think the shared hardship of the rain and the mud and the lack of, uh, you know, the the basic things that we come to expect from society but, would also have been a bonding experience for these people. But it, it, but it should have been a disaster. I mean, yeah. all hell should have broken loose. And yet the, the caller said, and it really was peaceful. You know, you, you kind of want to believe, oh, that's a myth. There were fistfights everywhere. But no, they, they really did make it work, which is exactly like... Michael and John were saying there was something that everybody said, we're going to, we all think the same way. We're going to make this happen. We're going to make this work. We're going to get along. These are the Leave it to Beaver kids. They were 10 in 1959. They're well-mannered. They they are a community. I I, I just think that uh, a a very telling detail in Valerie's uh, comments was this uh, detail about hitchhiking from Cambridge down to the festival. And, you know, uh, that, that kind of sense of community, that brotherhood that she mentioned, really uh, did, did have a continuity beyond the, the festival scene. And people hitchhiked. You, you'd get into a van. They would offer you whatever they were consuming. And, uh, you know, a lot of people just got around the country that way in those days. Mm-hmm. That, that was part of the community. Yep. All right. Let's go back to the phones. Uh, Andy is on the phone. Yeah, I, I, I was one to say I really enjoyed listening to Valerie's eyewitness accounts, too. And I... I can't follow up with anything so evocative, but I, I did want to, you guys were talking about the, the, the political context such as it was, and uh, I was just starting to get into high school when I saw the film, and one thing that really set me on my ear was watching Jimi Hendrix play the National Anthem the way he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of anger in that and a lot of beauty, both, I thought. Uh, it really kind of set me on my ear as, as, as a young person, and uh, 
I was thinking about that and, and, and thinking when you were discussing this and thinking about the fact that there's a man of color in the White House now. And, and um, But I, what, what Hendrix had to say through his guitar really made an impact on me. So I wanted to see if, if what you guys thought about that, too. All right, Andy. Hey, thanks a lot for the call. Thanks. Uh-huh. Glenn? Uh yeah, that's probably the most indelible moment of the mm-hmm. of the festival is Jimi Hendrix doing this benediction at dawn Monday morning with most of the crowd gone because, you know, the festival had gone with the storms and, and the long sets completely overtime. So most people had to get back to something Monday. And there's Jimi Hendrix playing over the remains of Woodstock doing this tortured, beautiful version of the Star Spangled Banner, which some read as anger and a protest, some read as, you know, Sorrowful, and so Jimmy said too. He loves. He, I love America, and it's being torn apart. And he tried to capture that in sound, in a, a sound collage, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then he went into Purple Haze from that, <laughs> our, our, our real national anthem. So it was a nice moment you know, all the way around. I thought. Anybody else? Any yeah, other I do think it underscores. Yeah. You know, on 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 one level, Woodstock is in politics in the sense of they're not songs about what's your five point plan for getting out of Vietnam, <laughs> yeah. but it's mm-hmm. it's a kind of lowest common denominator politics about the values that could bind people together. And I think Glenn is right. It's a it's about people who want a, a different United States and who are thinking about what what their country is. Uh, Valerie's absolutely right. Vietnam conditions all of this, especially mm-hmm. because so many of the young men in that crowd were subject to the draft. But mm-hmm. this was an intensely political uh, event, which is why it's remembered, but at the level that music is best suited to deal with, which is, a, as I say, a kind of lowest common denominator thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would add that um, the uh, one way of thinking about um, that rendition of the national anthem is that it was a kind of a, a retaking possession of the country. And I think that was a big part of the – to the extent that people were political, I think there, there was a sense that the country had been stolen in some way. And um, taking the national anthem and, and making it your own, this is, this is an act of repossession. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we're going to take our, our break just a minute or two early. We've got lots of different directions we can go. And once we get started, I don't think we're going to want to stop. So uh, you're listening to uh, Noon Edition. We're talking about Woodstock with Glenn Gass, Michael McGurr, and John McDowell, who are all three professors at Indiana University in different disciplines. We'll be right back. Listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, Smithville Telephone Information at smithville.net, and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting south-central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 7.45. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we have three guests today in our discussion about Woodstock, uh, Indiana University History professor Michael McGurr is here. He's a Paul V. McNutt professor of history. John McDowell, folklore professor and director of the Individualized Major Program at IU. And Glenn Gass, professor of music at the IU Jacobs School. If you want to join us, phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also go to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can email us from there. Follow us on Twitter at noon edition. You know, I was thinking about the – 
discussion of community, you know, I was kind of wondering in my head, okay, half a million people there. I mean, if, if somebody went, how many how many new Facebook friends would they have if they <laughs> went there? It's kind of a it's, it's like we're in a different world today. I mean, could, could do you think Woodstock could be replicated in any sense? There are a lot of big music festivals now, but they're a little different. Glenn. Uh, yes, they've tried to replicate. I mean, as you say, we've had the, the remember the Us Festival, <laughs> which was about us, no, you I know, know right? <laughs> and uh, Live Aid and Live Eight and Farm Aid, and you know, there are this Woodstock sort of set the template for festivals, mm-hmm. but they're always about something, mm-hmm. and it seems, and you know, it's it's hard to have that innocence again, you know, that that sense that you can look at somebody and kind of know just by how they wear their hair and what clothes they have on that they are like you. They're cool. And that you can pick them up in a car, that they're cool, or they, they you know, Vietnam, no one has to say the word, because you know everybody feels the same way about it. So there's this sort of shared uh, value system at work there. And uh, uh, musically, as a musician, I think it's just great that the Who are just hitting their stride as a band. It's not a Who reunion. Mm-hmm. I've seen enough reunions of Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd for these events, but this is this is it. This is the damn Who, you know. So mm-hmm. there's a, on a musical level, it's exciting, too. I, I, I agree with Glenn. Um, partly because pe- people stumbled into Woodstock, uh, literally, as Valerie was saying, but but figuratively as well. Um, also, it's worth remembering uh, part of what drove the youth culture of Woodstock was a, a belief in spontaneity, a skepticism about authority and structure. But part of the the miracle, not too much to say, the miracle of Woodstock is that this thing works despite a lack of, of bureaucracy and structure and in a sense from everybody that they know the rules of music festivals. Well, nobody would do that anymore and that's gone. I mean just to mention Facebook friends is already <laughs> a kind of bureaucratizing of what people saw right. as really should be the spontaneity of personal relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd like to report on a conversation I had with my 18-year-old son, Michael, on the, on, just before I came over here, and uh, I asked him his thoughts about it, and I, I sensed in his response that there was a kind of a longing, almost a wish that his generation could have a Woodstock, but a sense that they, that they can't. Um, but he, he did mention uh, the Obama inauguration uh, as a kind of a, a festivity that, that, that captured this, the spirit of, 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 of a generation, um, maybe a little bit in the same way that, that Woodstock did. Mm-hmm. All right. We have a phone call. Let's go to uh, John on the phone. John? Oh, hi there. Hey. Say, uh, you know, a lot's been made of Woodstock as being representative of something, but it sure seems like uh, a lot of emphasis being placed on this as somehow a, uh, a broadly American event when you really had a very particular part of America represented. Uh, there were only a, sp- a sprinkling of black acts, and not too many black folks were there. Um, I think Leave it the Beaver was mentioned, and I, it seems to me that uh, uh, you did have a kind of representation of a, of a sort of uh, upwardly mobile white America, um, but it was very specific, it seems to me, in that respect. Reaction? I'll uh, defer to the well, cultural historians. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that's true up to a point. When you see the crowd scenes of Woodstock, it's true. There, there are not so many black faces. There are a good number of black acts. Uh, we mentioned Jimi Hendrix, um, Sly and the Family Stone um, is there as well as Richie Havens and John mentioned. Um, but it seems to me what's what's missing there is, is soul music really. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't big soul acts in what was otherwise a very diverse music scene and, and that was quite representative musically. I think I think that's correct and it, it part of that represents a particular moment um, in which uh, black separatism, black nationalism was becoming more important among young African Americans and they really were beginning to split off and think about um, emphasizing a more separate culture of a nation within a nation. And that, that's one of the dynamics that's already ending the idea of a Woodstock nation even as it was, it was, even as it was appearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really valid point. Uh, it's sort of at Monterey Fest- the Monterey Pop Festival, the first big one that Michael mentioned in 67. Uh, Otis Redding was sort of the only black act there. And he was told by his manager, you know, you don't want to go there. That's, that's a bunch of white hippies. And Otis went and he was a knockout and, and he was great. And I wish James Brown had played at Woodstock. That would have been mm-hmm. tremendous. But, yeah. but Michael's right. There was this sort of sense that 
the, the, the things had parted ways by that point. You know, Martin Luther King had been assassinated a year earlier, and, and the, that, that kind of era of, of unity was over, sadly. I think caller John uh, gives us a useful reminder. You know that this was a very specific uh, segment of society, and uh, and in 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 many ways a small one. I would say this though: it was a very energized segment of society, and I think it had a tremendous impact on the on the fate of the nation. I, in some sense, I think after Woodstock, Vietnam was no longer possible. I mean, uh, I don't think there was any way uh, after after that statement that. Vietnam could be put forward as a as a as a as a realistic proposition. What have you said for every person at Woodstock? There were ten that wanted to be. That's already five million, and you know there were a hundred that wanted to be, or more. I mean, I think that actually it was a huge demographic. It was the baby boom coming of age, spreading their their wings or whatever, and showing just how big they were. And I think that's what was sort of scary about it to the adults, and and thrilling about it to all of us on the fringes of the the Woodstock nation. All right, we have a couple more phone calls. Sam is first. Sam. Hey, Sam. Hi there. Hey, Sam. Uh, I just had a question, uh, wondering how with Woodstock and uh, embodying the, the spirit of, of the time, how in a matter of weeks when they attempted Woodstock uh, West at Altera, uh, aside from the Hells Angels, how did that go so terribly wrong? And uh, how, could, how could things change so rapidly in that time period? And just wanted to hear your take on it. Hey, thanks, Sam. Well, uh, Altamont was December 1969. I mean, if you were really writing this as a novel, it's too perfect. You know, the last month of the decade, Mm -hmm. this good vibes just implodes with the Hells Angels beating up the audience. And the bands, Marty Ballin from the Jefferson Airplane, got knocked out. And I I think uh, all these nice, polite, leave-to-beaver kids didn't know how to deal with that sort of ugliness, that raw violence. And the Hells Angels were out of control right up at the stage, on the stage, and it just became chaos. And it did, it did show how fragile these moments are. You get Mick Jagger on the stage reduced to going, brothers and sisters, can we get along? And, and you realize, you know, flower power has its, its limits. So I'd also be- say um, one of the things that, dro- that drove youth culture in the 60s was this skepticism about a, a world built on profit and a world built on materialism. And the irony is for the, these are kids who care deeply about music on one hand and yet who believe on some level that it ought to be free. And music festivals, all of them struggled with this question of um, whether any money was going to be made out of this, whether anything should be charged. Musicians had a different perspective. Mm-hmm. The next festival in, in uh, Toronto, Festival Express, in 1970, breaks down completely over the question of whether any money would be made at all. And, and the Isle of Wight Festival, too, became basically, the, as Joni Mitchell called it, the Hate the Performer Festival, with people heckling them because they were on stage making money, and these poor guys that couldn't afford a ticket are outside this metal fence. Uh, you know, it got ugly pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. before, I, I've got a follow-up before I go back to the phones because I, I read one New York Times writer um, recently who said the festival had about as much to, had as much to do with excess as with idealism. It was as much an end point as a beginning, a holiday of naivete and dumb luck before the <laughs> realities of capitalism resumed. It, it sounds like a little bit – I mean maybe he stated a little bit more um, – Forcefully, but it sounds like a little bit like what you guys were talking about. Well, I think that you know there, there's some caution about idealism here, and uh, and uh, um, my friends have brought out one point. Another point I would bring out is that um, there was always uh, the kind of drug scene going on, and there there there, there was a, a a kind of a dangerous side, uh, I think, to this community that we that we want to uh, you know be reverential about, and uh, you know that 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 could create problems of another kind. Mm-hmm. But, but there is that sense of this is, what, this is who we are at our best and we can point to it. It's like the great generation, the greatest generation had D-Day or, you know, they had their moment. We don't have D-Day, but we got Woodstock, you know. I know it's a sad comparison, but it's ours and it's our moment, our high watermark when we can say, okay, at our best, this is what we could be. And, and you know, if you remember Live Aid, which is only 16 years later, that was sponsored by MTV and Chevrolet and AT&T. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine breaking into a commercial for Chevrolet in the middle of Woodstock? I mean, it, 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 <laughs> it'd be absurd. So mm-hmm. the, that, that demographic, you can just see Mad- Madison Avenue looking at these half million hippies going, whoa, we can market to that. Yeah, and, and, exactly. And, and, and that's why I think that the, the 
aspect of naivete can't be underplayed because if you think about it, there was nothing in our, as a country, recent history to compare to this kind of gathering. Um, and so why not go into it with, hey, this is going to be great because you have no concept of it falling apart. There's nothing, again, to compare it to. So the naivete had to just uh, be a huge component to the whole success of the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Naive in the way that all you need is love is right. Naive, exactly. You know, wonderfully. Yeah, we'll figure out naive, what but... to eat and where to go to the bathroom later when we need to. Yeah, and you could bring in the word innocence, you know. Yes. And, and, and there was a kind of a, a beautiful innocence uh, at, at work, I think. Mm-hmm. There, we we tend to emphasize the ways in which uh, Woodstock and youth culture are separate from the mainstream culture, but the, the thing that separates all of the cultural 1960s of the United States is this belief that you can – that the United States can do things and that the people are you – know, that's John F. Kennedy's inaugural address about paying any price, bearing any burden. Mm-hmm. Um, these are children of that, of that sense that you can in fact do things and they will work mm-hmm. and somehow they will work. In that sense, the Woodstock is very much a part of what the United States as a whole was about and that's something that we really don't have anymore. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go back to the phones and Neil. Neil? Yes, hello. Hi. I was at Woodstock, and uh, there are so many things to think of. I've, one of the most outstanding things to me that I remember most vividly was I was a sophomore in college at that time and uh, was introduced to Marxism and all that 1960s stuff. And in going to Woodstock... SDS was there and these other groups, and they were trying to politicize uh, people as they were coming in, and nobody was buying into their spiel. And they were so frustrated that they were cursing at the hippies, so-called, and um, because there was this consciousness or this awareness that they were there for the music that there was this countercultural idea that was based on drugs. I don't believe it had it that Woodstock had any foundation and that's why intellectually it didn't have any foundation outside of uh, drugs or a spirituality that ultimately was based on drugs. And I've never really paid any attention to it. I've never seen the movie. Um, as as a young person I remember the music was the core. I mean, those of us that went, especially the first night, Ravi Shankar played, I believe, as I recall, and Richie Havens, and, uh, gosh, who else? Joan Baez. And people were there because the music in that particular time had a message to it. And if you grew up in the 50s and you listened to, uh, you know, I had a girlfriend named Rama Lama 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 Ding Dong and that kind of stuff. You know, you know when you heard uh, Dylan, when you heard people that were actually saying something, there was just this enormous awareness that began to uh, develop. Dylan wasn't there, but Ravi Shankar, the whole idea of mysticism of the of the spiritual dimension of life really really took off and i you know when i look at woodstock i think of three woodstocks i think of the first woodstock being that friday night and then i see saturday as being a day when the the original core audience was very idealistic and and really oriented towards the music because i mean all just about everybody that you could want to hear was there. And uh, particularly, I wanted to hear The Who. That was, that was why I went. And, and Richie Havens. Those, those were my two big groups. But that idealism of wanting to be there for the music, <clears throat> I think that core group got swamped on day two. A lot of new people started coming in who were completely different. They were there for, for the event. They weren't there for the music. And, and by the third day, I believe it was totally diluted. It, it, it had completely changed in the uh, spirit of it, the mentality of the people that were there. I think it had completely changed. And I think the reason, again, was that there wasn't any real foundation. Intellectually, we were, very, uh, we were against the war, 
You know, we were very happy that uh, birth control had come out. We no longer had to be sexually responsible. Uh, we could all do drugs. You know, we could put LSD in the uh, reservoir and change the consciousness of America. I mean, it was totally naive and based upon things that, you know, were, were destined to fail. All right, Neil, we're going to get some reaction here. Lynn? Well, I like the fact that we remember there's music going on. <laughs> Thank you, Neil. I appreciate that. It's funny. I'm, stand, I'm sitting here looking at the album cover, and I keep remembering, oh, yeah, it's a concert, too. There, there is music. And there's almost been this sort of party line about Woodstock that it was a great event and the music was sort of crummy. And it wasn't. I mean, some of it was, sure. But there were some really outstanding moments musically just, just on that level. So I'm glad he brought it back to that. Give too. me a crummy moment and a good moment musically. Well, the Grateful Dead were famously awful. Uh, Jerry Garcia said we were bad at Monterey and really bad at Woodstock. And, <laughs> and they gave birth to this whole movement in a sense, so it's ironic. Uh, but the Who were great. Uh, J- Jimi Hendrix, of course, or Joe Cocker doing a little help from my friends. How can yeah. anyone forget that? Santana. Uh, Santana, Santana had, didn't even have a record contract yet, and he was on, yeah. the, Carlos was on fire. Yeah, uh, great moments. That's right. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go back to the phones. We have Joe next. Joe? Yes. Hey, go ahead. Um, hi. I um, have already had many chances uh, on WFIU to talk about Woodstock uh, and, uh, and play the music uh, as I did last week. But um, I really lived it through the movie more than being there. Uh, I instead was in basic training while the thing was going on. Um, and, my, you know, my country was basically training me to go to war, which I didn't want to do. And so I philosophically uh, would have been at Woodstock. What I wanted to address was somebody mentioned a a, sort of a a racial division that that, uh, was going on there. In fact, um, uh, there was the phenomenal performance by Richie Havens at the beginning of the event as they waited for other acts to arrive. Uh, He left the stage uh, seven or eight times, and they kept sending him back out there. Uh, and so that was a black act that got the thing off to a start. Uh, the um, band of uh, Sly and Family Stone was an integrated group. I'm not sure if they were at that moment, but uh, they were an integrated group and one of the first uh, to really be successful during that period. And, of course, we had Carlos Santana, and all of a sudden we all became aware of uh, Latin rock and Latin musicians. Uh, as uh, rockers, and uh, that was something new to our generation, as I recall. Uh, Nothing since uh, La Bamba had been uh, done in Spanish in any way. So uh, I think it was very integrated in that sense, and integrated, of course, internationally as well with the British groups. I just wanted to make that comment. All right, Joe. Joe Bourne. Thank you. From WFIU. Thank, Thank you, Joe. Okay. We do appreciate it. Any, any response or reaction to Joe? Well, I, I, I wanted to get back to uh, something that, that Neil said, and it ties into to, to Joe's message too, and that is um, something that was very exciting about the musical moment of Woodstock was this idea that um, – the horizons were opening up and the songs could have messages and they could, you know, it, it, it's true that a lot of pop music, um, you know, in the in, in earlier years uh, didn't really wrestle with, with, with big issues. But um, but the a lot of the, the bands that were prominent at Woodstock, uh, you know, were famous for, for taking on, uh, you know, big questions, you know, uh, philosophical, religious and so forth. So there was a real opening up of the horizon and I, I think that, that uh, that's a significant factor. I appreciate that Neil brought that up. Just a, a fine point. Was this uh, broadcast over the radio as it was happening so people could listen who couldn't attend? No. No, uh, no not at all. In yeah. fact, you had to wait for the movie. And by the time the movie came out, spring, summer 1970, it, 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 and the album as well, the soundtrack album, it had taken on this sort of epic uh, proportion. I remember seeing it at the uh, Vaughn Castle Theater in Greencastle, Indiana, and we're all a bunch of little freaks in Greencastle. <laughs> the, the 60s are finally hitting in 1970, yeah. and we're like, yeah, that's that's it. That's how we need to look and act and be. And So, yeah, the, the movie was crucial that way. Yeah. I, I wish I had asked uh, the people who were there what they wore. I just would like to know what, <laughs> if it was all tie-dye and, you know. Um, 
John, I want to go back to, to what you were talking about with, the, with some of the messages of these songs and sort of tie it into you know, your whole uh, interest in protest music. I mean, was, how does Woodstock, I mean, in terms of, of the, the volume of protest music, the people who were there, I mean, where does that fit into sort of the continuum of people who are writing protest songs? Well, it, it, uh, certainly it, it could be put into a, uh, a continuum that would have a, con- a considerable historical uh, reach to it. I mean, when I, when I think of, uh, you know, some of the figures that are represented in Woodstock and that were very active in the, in the 60s and 70s uh, music scene, I, in some ways I, w- I would go back to the, uh, the Wobblies, you know, the IWW and, and you know, Joe Hill, the, the songster, and then the song, the song about Joe Hill. Um, Woody Guthrie coming, you know, bringing that, uh, you know, through the Depression years and, um, you know, singing songs that uh, took on the big, the big capitalists and so forth. Um, you know, the children of Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, you know, Bob Dylan and so forth. And, you know, you got Joan Baez up there. And, uh, you know, this, this is not a far-fetched, uh, you know, uh, scenario here. You really do have this kind of continuity. Um, again, you know, the, the, the purpose of the, of the event was not you know to uh you know to 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 nail the uh the enemy exactly you know that's but but i think that this this kind of undercurrent uh the notion that song can gather people together it can create a community that will stand up in opposition to uh some of the mainstream uh things that are happening especially vietnam at that time i think that's an important theme mm-hmm. what was the original intent was it just music clan uh Boy, it's so hard to, 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 to take music out of the culture or vice versa. I, I think it was a gathering of the tribes on this epic scale, uh, which is what they called the first human being in San Francisco in 67. I think they're, it, you know, the Monterey and other festivals had been gathering momentum. It showed that, you know, in 1966, the Beatles were still playing Shea Stadium. You know, that was the biggest thing you could imagine, mm-hmm. pop music in. And all of a sudden, these outdoor concerts up the scale so dramatically that I think it immediately became an event, a place to gather and listen to music. So, mm-hmm. you know, but I think as, as John was saying, there's, there's subtext all the time. And there's Crosby, Stills, National Young singing wooden ships, like about refugees from this insane society and insane war. And just dropping out is maybe an answer. Or Jefferson Airplane singing volunteers as if, you know, we're going to pick up the 1776 spirit and go fight for our to win our country back. So there's, there's a lot of subcurrents going on that, mm-hmm. in the music. Uh, you know, there's a, a new movie coming out. I don't know if anybody has seen the trailer or have a chance to see it, do a screening. I don't know if they're doing that kind of thing. But uh, that seems to, from the trailer, it seems like it's sort of going back to the people that had the farm and trying to figure out how to go about this. I mean, what are your sort of hopes and fears about this movie that's coming out? <laughs> I hope the standard music film is pretty bad. Pick, yeah. pick a genre. Yeah. And, uh, most of them, you know, gee, we'll put on a show kind of thing. <laughs> I, 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 from what I've read, there's very little music in it, which is probably a good thing. I think it's more about the, the spirit and the event and like told through a sort of personal narrative. I, I, by a great director, uh, I have high hopes for it. I hope, mm-hmm. I hope it's very good. What do you think the legacy is in in your own opinion? And I know that's a really big question and everybody's asking it, but I'd like to hear your opinions. Um, Biggest thing that you think is carrying through. Why are we still talking about it 40 years later? And I'd like each of you. Go ahead, Glenn. Okay. uh, John said before he was talking to his son, and I get this also in my classes, that this sort of longing for the 60s. Like it, it looks like this magic time to them when everybody sort of agreed on the same things, the same music, the same philosophies and... And the Obama election did sort of bring a sense of that back mm-hmm. that young people felt like, yeah, we did make a difference and we really are part of something. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I, I think that may be its greatest legacy. It sort of summed up in one neat little and beautiful little package what, what the 60s were about. I hate to use that expression, but that, mm-hmm. that what, 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 what it could all be about at its best. And I think that that spirit has lived on. And I think all young people look to Woodstock and think, yeah, that's cool. I wish we could do that. I wish there was a sense of us that we could say us and have that mean something. Mm-hmm. In 1969, you could say us and you knew more or less what that meant, mm-hmm. that community. I think sometimes um, I wonder if we're, we're kind of a self-indulgent generation that thinks that you know, our iconic moments were just you know, huger than anybody else's iconic moments. Is, do you, does it, is there any validity to that? 
<laughs> I, I think every generation is self-indulgent in some way. I agree, I, I agree with Glenn. I think first of all, people look back on the 60s to a United States – almost regardless of their political standpoint, as a United States that could do things and that could aspire to things, whether it's the civil rights movement uh, or the liberalism of the great society or the countercultural – uh, lifestyle of Woodstock. The other thing I'd say though is it's not purely nostalgic. I, I don't really agree w with the caller who said there isn't a foundation to Woodstock. There was. There, um, Woodstock was emblematic of a profound shift in America's thinking about big institutions and about their relationship um, to authority of all kinds. And it really did mark a change and we still live with that. We still live with a great deal of skepticism about institutions. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I also think it's, it reflects um, a, a kind of democratization of American culture that we live with as well. Uh, the last thing I'd say on that square, if you wonder whether Woodstock meant anything, after Country Joe McDonald did the fish cheer and then I feel like I'm fixing to die rag, President Nixon put him on his enemies list. <laughs> <laughs> so must have meant something. Oh, that's great. The, the, the ultimate honor. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the question of legacy, I, I would probably just come back and locate it squarely in the music. I just think it, it was a remarkable time when people, um, the music was fluid, it was flexible, there was room for improvisation and jamming and so forth. The, the message was powerful. The connection to the audience was, uh, was electric. I just think it was a, a, a brilliant moment when music uh, connected with people. We have just a quick email that's come in. Um, it asks, could you talk a bit about how the 1967 Monterey Pop Festival was really a template for Woodstock in a way, the first Woodstock? Glenn, maybe 30 seconds? Well, yes, I, it was a template. It sort of proved that pop music deserved a festival, for one thing. We've had jazz oh. festivals, folk festivals, classical festivals. Why not a pop festival for mere pop music? And they proved, by God, it is worthy of but that. So. There was a big difference in line with what we've talked about. Monterey Pop was run by musicians, mm -hmm. um, by John Phillips yeah. of the Mamas and the Papas. And it avoided some of the kinds of tensions between audience and, and musicians that later festivals would suffer from, like yeah. Altamont that we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point, too. All right. Any uh, final no more email? Okay. No, I got that. That uh, was taken care of. All right. So we're, at, we're really out of time. I mean, this has been fantastic. It's gone very quickly today. Uh, I want, we've been talking about Woodstock. It was 40 years ago. What were the dates? 15th to the 17th? Is yeah, that, more or less last week. Last week? Yeah, well, we, we had Baron Hill last week. So we're still good. hitchhiking <laughs> right. home here. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we're going to keep thinking about it. Right. But uh, it's, I, I want to thank uh, all three of you for being here. Glenn Gass, professor of music at I, the IU Jacobs School. Michael McGurr, the Paul V. McNutt professor of history. And John McDowell, folklore professor in director of the Individualized Major Program at IU. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Ariana Prothero, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery. <laughs>